Good morning, my name is Sam, and I am honored and delighted to uh, be with you this morning. Thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, several of you already just come up to me before service and during service and been so kind to, to greet me and to make me feel like uh, I'm a part of your church family. And, uh, and if I got a slice of what it's like to be a, uh, someone who walks through your, uh, these doors, I can really say uh, it's a testimony to the warmth. Uh, and the kindness of your congregation. I'm here because Pastor Wujin, who I've known for about 15 years, he and Grace are dear friends of ours, and I met Pastor Jay just a few months ago. Pastor Wujin reached out to me asking if I would come and, and speak uh, on behalf of the staff, and I was more than glad to do so. Uh, I've spoken here a couple of times, actually. I remember a number of years ago, uh, I spoke here maybe seven or eight years ago, so a while ago, um, and then uh, just recently my wife and I uh, we're fortunate to do a marriage workshop back in April, and we had a great, great time with you all. Okay, um, Allow me to just dive right into our message this morning, but before I do so, could we pray once more? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you that we are highly favored, we are called, we are blessed, we are filled with your power, and with your power comes hope in the midst of whatever we're facing today. So Lord, wherever we are, and whatever we're going through, I pray this would be a moment throughout the, this is the moment in the service where you would be the lifter of our heads and remind us of who you are and the power and the truth and the hope and the comfort that comes through Christ and his words. Would you now minister by your spirit through your word this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Allow me to start with a question. Um, have you ever lo- waited so long for something that once it was just within your grasp, any minor delay or detour felt like an eternity? And that's happened to me many times, but probably one of the most distinct times when I just I was so close and yet so far it felt like was like, the day I was about to leave for my honeymoon. The reason why, um, because I almost missed my flight for my honeymoon. Now, just to give you a, a little bit of context or background, my wife and I were long distance for three years. From the very beginning of our relationship to our wedding day, long distance. I was living in Florida, and she was living in Toronto, she's Canadian, and we had never lived in the same country until after we were married. So, long distance, that was letters, that was email. Uh, cell phone was starting to emerge back then in the late 90s, so uh, I used a lot of calling cards, okay, and our visits were infrequent, um, and I would come, we would see each other maybe once every three or four months, a weekend at a time, a week at a time, and the longest I think we ever spent together was just two weeks uh, later in our relationship. So finally the wedding came, and we're about to head out for our honeymoon, we got married in Toronto, we're going to fly to the west coast of Vancouver, and her dad insisted that we have one last family meal, right the day we're supposed to fly out. And I was very clear to my father-in-law, as respectful as possible, you know, our flight leaves at this time, he's like, no problem, we'll have this meal, and we'll make it in plenty of time, you know where this is going, okay? The meal was wonderful, but something he couldn't foresee but he should have planned for was bumper-to-bumper traffic from his house to the airport. 
And I can tell you right now, okay? I felt for my father-in-law, even though there was intense anger and resentment building within me. I had waited three years, okay, to be with my bride. And, I, and he felt so bad. I remember he was praying out loud in the car, praying for a parting of the cars like the Red Sea. I heard him. He was like, oh, I could feel it. But I was just boiling inside. And, we were, and when we arrived at the airport, we got into the check-in counter. And uh, <laughs> you know where this is going. Uh, it was, the flight hadn't left, but it was too late to check in. <laughs> uh, the next flight was several hours later, you know. So several hours later, but I remember my wife coming over to me. She knew, because we were in the back seat. She knew how anxious I was, how upset I was. She's like, Sam, talk to my dad. Can you talk to my dad? I said, not right now, sweetie. <laughs> I cannot look at him. I cannot talk to him. <laughs> uh, eventually, uh, we, we got caught the flight later that night. But the root of the issue was not my father-in-law's lack of time management. <laughs> but the root, friends, was my own selfishness and honestly my lack of appreciation for his love, his kindness, and his generosity. He had, he had blessed my marriage. He wanted to feed us one last time. You see, I was focused more on my goals, my timeline, and my desires that I failed to see my father-in-law's heart. This morning, as I speak before you, is there anyone in this room, honestly and personally, who is wrestling with God? You're wrestling with anger, resentment, and possibly indifference towards a God Towards God because of painful disappointments, unbearable delays, unforeseen detours, and discouraging circumstances that you are facing right now. And as believers, as Christ followers, as his beloved, how can we reconcile the difficult landscape of our lives with a loving and faithful and a good God? We sang about his goodness, but some of us aren't feeling his goodness right now. Well, I hope this message comes in a timely manner. And here's the main idea of my message. And let me give you a preview. I'm just going to lay it out for you where I'm heading with my message from this text. And then we'll walk through this text. This is the main theme of my message. If you're taking notes, God uses the wilderness to reveal himself to us and to deepen our dependence on him. God sustains us through seasons of wilderness in three ways that I'll, I'll, I'll show and reveal through this passage. Number one, he directs our paths to protect us from ourselves. Secondly, he delivers on his promises, but in his perfect timing. And thirdly, he dwells within us and leads us by his presence. God uses the wilderness to reveal himself to us and to deepen our dependence on him. The reason I picked this passage was I was reading this uh, several months ago in my just my morning reading, my devotions, and it really stuck out to me. As you, some of you, as you were reading it out loud, there, there's a verse in there that says God, instead of taking them one way, He took them the long way, and that haunted me, puzzled me, perplexed me to the point where I was led to study and prepare actually this sermon. But friends, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to remind you, I'm here to pastorally and humbly just 
propose and submit to you that your wilderness is not a waste. That there's actually a romance that God wants to build within your wilderness and mine. And God sustains us through seasons of wilderness in three ways. Three ways. And the first one I mentioned, and I'll walk through this, he directs our paths to protect us from ourselves. He directs your path and mine to protect us actually from ourselves. The book of Exodus, the, 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 the theme, just the, the, the context is this. It, re, it recounts how God graciously delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt and traces their journey through the wilderness and describes in detail the covenant God that he makes with him at Mount Sinai. So Exodus highlights the supreme faithfulness and the mercy of God while contrasting this with Israel's repetitive grumbling, rebellion, and sin. This book presents the uh, condensed picture of the gospel. Exodus, the book of Exodus, we're to distill it now down is this, that it shows and emphasizes that God is in the business of saving sinners. Look with me in verse 17. I hope you have your app open or if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to just walk us through this passage. Verse 17, it says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Notice that. Even the author says it was closer. There was a path that was faster and closer, but it says in verse 17, for God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. The way of the land uh, of the Philistines, it was surely the quickest way for Israel to get from Egypt to the promised land. They would have arrived in two weeks instead of 40 years that many of us are familiar with. The fastest and the shortest way, friends, here's a spiritual principle, the fastest and the shortest way is not always the best way. And a lot of us harbor bitterness and resentment against God because we feel like there were faster, better, smoother ways. And he didn't give us, lead us in that direction. My life is, a, is a, some of you are saying, my life is about circling. It's about detouring. It's about going round and round and round. What could God be possibly up to in my life, in my wilderness? Why did God not take them the direct way of the Philistines? Actually, the passage is very explicit. Why? Of course, the Israelites didn't know why, but in verse 17, it says this. There were enemies in that direction, and they were not ready for battle. Look what there in verse 17. Lest the people change their mind when they see war and they return to Egypt. What were the people of Israel been doing for the previous hundreds of years? What were they doing? They were... They were slaves. They were, uh, they were, they're working in, uh, uh, at, at the will of the Egyptian leaders and rulers. They were not warriors. God knew if he took them the fast way, they would have seen the enemies and they would have scattered. They would have been defeated. They would have maybe gone back to Egypt. You see, he knew the path that, that they thought was the fastest, the shortest, and the best. But he knew if they went down that path, they, he knew that they weren't equipped. They weren't ready for what was waiting for them on the other side. You see, in God's infinite wisdom and sovereign grace, he led his people around the long way through the wilderness towards a sea. (laughs) A sea. He took them towards the Red Sea. And even an obstacle and a barrier was the direction that God was taking them. 
Look with me in verse 18. It says that explicitly, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Now, why? What did, what did God have in mind when he's doing this? There's two reasons. Number one is this. It's to expose the hearts of his people. Expose the hearts of his people. See, by taking them through the wilderness towards the rest, see, something within the hearts of the Israelites would actually surface, that then God could address it. In Exodus chapter 14, some of you know the narrative as they approach the Red Sea, Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians and their chariots and their soldiers, they're in hot pursuit. They're like, what have we done? We need to get our slaves back. And so they're kind of hemmed in between the sea and, the, and, and their, 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 uh, their former slave masters. And it says in Exodus 14, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, it says. And they cried out to the Lord, why did you take us out of Egypt for us to die in the wilderness? For it would have been better for us to die in Egypt than in the wilderness. You see, Israel's exodus from Egypt wasn't the end of their experience with God, but actually it was a new beginning. One, One author said this, It took one night to take Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. Why does God take us the long way, the hard way, into obstacles and barriers? Because in doing so, things within us surface. That God wants to address, heal, free, and address with the gospel. Why does God take us the long way into obstacles? Number one, again, to expose the hearts of his people. And secondly, to demonstrate his power. To demonstrate his power. As, as you, some of you know, the narrative continues in Exodus 14. As they're hemmed in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Um, they, they're stuck. They're, they don't know what to do. But in verse 13, it says this. Then Moses said to the people in Exodus 14, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the e- Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Why does God take us the long way, the hard way, the lonely way, into obstacles and into and, and places that seem impenetrable to reveal what's inside of our hearts, but also to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate who he is, reveal who he is, that he is good, he is sovereign, he is king. He is in full and absolute control. That he is the one who will actually fight for us. You see, before the Lord calls Israel to trust that he will fight through them, that we read about later in Exodus 17, that they battle the enemy called the Amalekites, he wants to reinforce and he wants to ground them in this truth, that before he fights through us, Church, listen up. Before God wants to fight through you and accomplish great things through you, he wants you to know and believe without a shadow of a doubt that he has fought for you. The gospel is the good news of of what God has already done for us through the sacrificial death of his son so that we don't have to fight our battles alone, but we can trust in the one who is able. So that we can live with hope, forgiveness, and freedom for him. 
You see, our greatest need may not be deliverance from the desert, but deeper dependence on the deliverer. Your greatest need may not be a solution, a rescue, or deliverance from your circumstance, but a deeper dependence on the one who is able. One author, Anne Voskamp, she says this, Success to the world may look like independence, possessions, competition, and affluence. But success to God looks like this, thirsting for presence, daily repentance, relentless dependence, endless remembrance, and outrageous obedience. You see, God wants to redefine and direct us to his definition of success, which is a deeper and deeper dependence on him. Amen? So he directs our paths to protect us from ourselves and also to demonstrate who he really is. Secondly, the second way that God sustains us through the wilderness in life is this. He delivers on his promises in his perfect timing. He will deliver. He makes promises, he keeps promises, and he delivers on his promises, but in his perfect timing. Look with me in verse 19. Let me read that aloud once again. Moses took the bones of Joseph. Now what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why does the author insert something about someone who's been dead for hundreds of years in this narrative? If you read on in verse 19, here's why. It says this, For Joseph had made the sons of Israel Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry uh, uh, carry up my bones with you from here. Now, how does carrying someone's mummified body communicate God's faithfulness and delivering on his promises? You see... They were honoring the last wishes of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, he made his son's promise, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph back then believed that God was faithful and would make good on his promise to Abraham. And so this is, this is the author's way of saying, God is a God who makes promises and he doesn't forget them. Even though you might feel he forgot them, you might, you, you, you might have forgot them. God doesn't forget his promises. He delivers on his promises, but in his perfect timing. So the bones of Joseph symbolize and reaffirm for the people of Israel that God kept his promises in the past. And check this out, church. And if God keeps his promises to us from the past, he has promises that he'll deliver on for you and for me in the future. Amen. Have you been facing disappointment, battling discouragement, and feeling defeated in your faith? Because God has not been answering your prayers and fulfilling your longings. Well, I'm here to humbly and gently remind you that the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus should and can remind, comfort, and encourage us that God does not forget He does not waver or fail to make good on his promises. As you and I press on in our spiritual journey, especially through seasons of wilderness, by relying upon God's Christ's enabling grace, let's look to his own example. Jesus began his ministry in the wilderness by overcoming and facing temptation. He waited 30 years uh, to begin his ministry and only had only three years of fulfilling his mission. 
And he fulfilled his mission by enduring an unspeakable wilderness on the cross for you and for me. And because Christ faced and overcame the greatest and the deepest wilderness known on earth, which was the cross, you and I, we can cling to hope and faith and the truth of his forgiveness, his redemption, and his acceptance. I remember hearing a speaker several months ago, an author who I would commend to you, Scott Sauls. I remember hearing him say this at a conference. And this is for believers. Our long-term, worst-case scenario is resurrection and everlasting life. Did you catch that, church? Whatever you're facing, whatever the loved ones around, of you, loved ones around you are going through, your long-term, worst-case scenario is resurrection and everlasting life. Amen? He always delivers on his promises. He did it through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And he will and can deliver on his promises in his perfect timing in your life and mine. Thirdly and lastly, God sustains us through seasons of wilderness, through directing our paths to protect us from ourselves, to deliver on his promises in his perfect timing, and lastly, by dwelling within us and leading us by his presence. By dwelling within us and leading us by his presence. In the last uh, few verses of this passage, verses 20 to 22, let me just read those really quick. And they moved on from Succoth and, and encamped at Etham. Huh. Etham. What, what's, why is Etham in there? You see, there, the Israelites, uh, Israelites, as they make their way further away from Egypt, they stop at Etham. Why is that significant? Why did the author include that in this narrative? It's because of this. Etham literally is on the edge of the wilderness. You see, the Israelites, they're not dumb. They know that there's a, there's a route this way that, that's much shorter and faster, even though they don't know that there's enemies on the other end of it. And as they're uh, getting closer, because you know, when you start going in a certain direction, the vegetation is less. There seems to be less life. There's more desert and there's wilderness. And as they're coming and uh, embarking upon the wilderness... They, they, start, they start finding places to rest. They're, they're dragging their feet is in essence what the author is saying. They're about to dip their toe into the wilderness and they camp out at Etham, literally at the edge of the wilderness. And as they prepare to go into the unknown, to, into the wilderness, God provides for them their greatest need at that time. And it says that in verse 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. He gave them their, their greatest need. Their greatest need was not more food or water or soldiers or animals to lead them through the wilderness. And a lot of us can think of, oh God, if only you gave, us, gave me this person, this promotion, this job, this relationship, this answer to prayer, then I will be all set. Then I can tackle whatever you have before me. No, God takes it a step further, many steps further. He says, more than those things, material, tangible things, I'm going to give you even something more powerful and yet more personal. He gives them his presence. Friends, in your wilderness today, are you asking God for more of his presence? Because that's 
what he wants to offer you in your wilderness. So he went, goes before them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night to remind them you are not alone. Maybe that's the message I have for one person this morning. You are not alone. There is a father who sees, who cares, who knows, and he'll provide the greatest thing of all, which is himself. As you make this journey in life, let's be reminded, and maybe today's a reminder, that you are a child of the living God. Amen? You're a child of the living and sovereign God. You're redeemed by the gospel, and you're not alone. We are not left as orphans. And again, sometimes the wilderness is the time when we come to realize that, and we're reminded of that the most. Everything is gone, <laughs> but God, you've never, you've never left me, nor forsaken me. Someone says this, the definition of friend is this. A friend is someone who comes into your life when other people are walking out. I thought it's a good definition. But I'd like to take it a step further. God is someone who's never left. He's not neither coming nor going. He's always by your side. Amen? He dwells within you by his very presence, by his Holy Spirit, which is a gift and a consequence of the gospel. You see, God's presence is not only around us, among us, but by His Spirit, He lives within us. And the purpose and the goal of His presence, now watch this, I'm about to wrap up. The purpose and goal of God's presence is this, not that we get what we want, we get more of Him. You see, the purpose and the goal of God's presence in our life is to drive us and lead us deeper into His presence. One author and musician, Michael Card. Man, this man's been playing and writing music for like 50 years now. He's one of my all-time favorites. He has a quote that he wrote in a book called Sacred Sorrow. Let me read this to you. He says this, True worship begins in the wilderness. Praise is almost always the answer to a plea that arises in the desert. There is no worship without wilderness. There can be no worshipful joy of salvation until we have realized the lamentable wilderness of which we were saved from and until we begin to understand just what it costs Jesus to come and to find us and be that perfect provision in the wilderness. Why does God lead you and I and people we care about into the wilderness? So that we can get to know him more. Be reminded that he's never left us nor forsaken us. And he never will. And as a result, for us to actually go deeper and deeper into his presence and to know him more. There is no worship without wilderness. I remember uh, there's a season in my life um, where for nine months I was unemployed. And... Uh, that's one thing to be unemployed when you're living at home with your parents. 
It's one thing to be unemployed when you know there's a job offer waiting at the end of that season of unemployment. It's just a transition period. But I left a, a ministry position not knowing what I would be doing next. I just felt so strongly called and confirmed that it was the right time for me to leave. Now, I was a young father with two kids under the age of five. My wife was working part-time. And so I was uh, entering to the season. People were even saying, question, my friends were saying, what are you going to do? You live in Northern Virginia. Your wife works part-time. There's no, like, uh, there's no, like, uh, cushion. Our savings was very, very modest. Maybe we had enough to live off one month's worth. I know that goes against financial planning. So about, uh, I would like to say, three, three months into my season on unemployment, it ended up being nine months. A friend of mine who worked uh, in, in, in downtown D.C., he worked uh, for a lobbyist group on K Street. He was gathering uh, young adults. as a Korean-American young adult kind of consortium, and, and he was gathering young adult, uh, Korean-American high school, college, and young adults. And he was bringing in Korean-American leaders of different industries, politics, business, medicine, and so forth, and law. And then he wanted me to give kind of a, an address to uh, this audience. You know, and of course, whenever you speak, you're, you're asked to give a bio. That, that was the shortest bio I've ever given. Because I was tempted to pad the bio, all the things I've done, all the years, all the, all the Taekwondo belts that I've accumulated when I was a kid, and, you know, my parents paid for it, all that kind of stuff, right? But I didn't. I just kept it very simple. This is where I've served. This is my family. And it was the shortest bio I've ever given. And generally, before I speak... Um, and this is, not, this is not a statement about my level of proficiency, competence, or confidence, but I don't normally get nervous. It's just maybe my wiring. But I remember the night before I spoke to that gathering, I, I tossed and turned all night. I felt so unworthy and insecure. Like, who am I to speak to this group, this gathering? And again, literally, there's people who are on TV. <laughs> Korean-American people who are journalists on TV. There are people I've read about in newspapers sitting on this panel. And Sam Kim drove down to D.C., got into the elevator of the building. Still so anxious, so nervous. But there's something that happened in that elevator ride. There's a deep sense of peace and assurance that fell over me. I was reminded of the gospel. So literally from the ground floor to the floor where uh, this gathering was held, God reminded me I'm not alone. I'm not an orphan. That my identity is not based on my performance. My, my identity is based on Christ's performance on the cross for me. Amen? And literally as the doors, I still remember it, as the doors of the elevator were opening for me to step onto that floor, I whispered this prayer. God, my identity is in you. My identity is in you. Not what I do even just in a few minutes. Not what I've done for the previous number of years. My identity solely relies and rests upon me. And so I spoke. And I crushed it. <laughs> No, I don't know if I crushed it. But I do know that Jesus was crushed for you and for me on that cross to make a statement once and for all in all of history, you are not alone. 
you are precious, you're favored, you are worthy to be rescued, redeemed, and to be adopted into God's family. You are never, ever going to be alone. You see, the Lord's loving and, so- sovereign, loving and sovereign kindness leads us through the valleys and the deserts of life so that we would be reminded of his unrelenting grace and also to lead us to humbly repent of our idols, anything that we find our worth and our value in apart from Christ, and to find our rest and our joy in Christ alone. And as a result, may your life and mine reveal the power and the hope of the gospel to refine us, to rescue and redeem us, no matter the wilderness, for our good and for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to respond personally, not to the message, but to the Master. I want you to say in your own words, if you feel like this is a moment that you don't want to pass by, dear Jesus, dear God, I trust you in fill in the blank. I trust you in my finances. I trust you in my health. I I trust you with all the drama in my family. I trust you with uncertainty about my future. Jesus, I trust you in fill in the blank. Would you just take a moment to see what that blank is that God's bringing to your mind and for you to surrender and trust in him right here, right now as a declaration of your love and your adoration for your good father. So just take a moment to pray and then I'll close us in just about a few seconds, just 30 seconds or so. Say in your own words, what do you want to trust the Lord in? Believe that he is with you and for you in this circumstance, situation, or decision.